Welcome to the Upper Room Podcast. Thank you so much for stopping by. I'm Pastor Carl McLaughlin from Calvary Pentecostal Church in Euless, Texas. We're located in Dallas-Fort Worth, where 8 million call DFW home. Whether you're tuning in to Sunday or Wednesday's message, we pray that you will find words of encouragement. It is our mission to provide a positive and encouraging voice in the midst of uncertainty. I pray that you will be blessed by today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Upper Room Podcast, and welcome back to an all-new episode. We are so happy you're here today. This Wednesday night, we heard from Pastor McLaughlin as he continues his series on the six foundation stones to build on, outlining the responsibilities we have as apostolics as a whole. This is such a foundational message, and we hope you're encouraged today. If you have your Bibles and would go to Proverbs chapter 22, verse 8, I know it's a little bit of an odd scripture for me to be reading um, in dealing with our, our second stone and the six stones uh, to build on. We're talking about character, and tonight we're talking about responsibility. The first one was integrity. Tonight, we're talking about responsibility. We're, and what we're doing in our lessons on Wednesday night is we're addressing a character, a, a godly character, and then a, a corresponding competency. The competency with this is time management. Responsibility, it's a character issue. Time management is you can be competent in this area. I won't even get to that because I want to walk through tonight the sense of obligation. I want to talk about godly direction and an eternal destination within the context of responsibility. And so I will first address the responsibility of the family and how we lead our children. I will then address um, the responsibility of men. Thirdly, I will address the responsibility of women in an apostolic context. And then, Lord willing, if we get there, I will address the ministry of decrease, the responsibility of decreasing and the difference between rights and responsibilities. When you climb leadership, you lose your right and you gain responsibilities. When you're at the bottom of leadership, you have a lot, you've got a lot of options. But as you take on more responsibility, your responsibilities shrink and you have a lot more, excuse me, your rights shrink and you have a lot more responsibility. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm asking you to have your way tonight. Direct our steps. Help us, Lord. I pray, God of heaven, that we would be men and women of responsibility and that we would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, let's read together. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The first thing that I would like to discuss is the responsibility to set direction and destination for the family. You may be seated. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 is the dedication of children in responsibility. Responsibility has a sense of obligation. There is a godly direction, and then there must be an eternal destination. It includes the idea, this is dedicating our children. It includes the idea of setting aside, of narrowing, or of hedging in. When we are using this term, train, train up a child in the way that he should go. It, it gives the idea and the sense of setting a child aside, of narrowing things down for the child, 
or even hedging in that child. When they're younger, the boundaries are much stricter. As they show that they're responsible, then the boundaries can increase and they can have more freedom. The worst thing that you and I can do as parents, the <clears throat> And the worst thing that I could do as a pastor, the worst thing that any church leader could do is if people are not responsible in a small area of boundary, give them more authority, give them more power, and give them more freedom because they will hurt everyone inside of this small boundary. However, the opposite is also true. If a young person, if a leader is showing significant amount of responsibility and they are accountable to the Lord and they are accountable to the body of Christ, then those boundaries can stretch outward and they feel more a sense of freedom. Watch out for that person that can't even function in a real small circle of responsibility and they're always pushing the boundaries and they always want more power and they always want more authority. Very dangerous person. You do not want to give that person any more freedom or power. Th the same is true inside of the house. When you're raising children, you establish your boundaries, you set them in, you hedge them in, you narrow that down to build godly character inside of them. If they violate your boundaries and they violate your rules and they want freedom and they want freedom and they want freedom, the worst thing that you can do as a mom or a dad is just kick the door open and stretch that thing out and say, okay, go for it. They will destroy themselves and they will destroy the family. If they can't function here, they don't need this much freedom. We've got to narrow it in and hedge it in. It would be better for them to feel that pain inside of the house than to get outside of the house and feel the pain of Satan, feel the pain of sinful people, feel the pain of this world. Better for them to feel the, they're going to feel pain either way. Better for them to feel the pain of a loving mom and dad or a loving youth pastor or a loving young adult leader or a loving fam director or a loving pastor. Better to feel that kind of pain because we're on their side and we're for them. The worst thing they can do is experience the pain out there. Come back and say, Mom, Dad, why'd you let me have so much freedom? Shrink my boundary down. All I want to do is just live in the safety of my house. The word sometimes is used in the sense of to start. If we fail to train up, and think about that term, just think about that right there, just the first two words of verse 6, train up. I mean, that in and of itself, think about it, train up. How are we training people? Let's train them up. Whatever we do, don't train them down. If we're going to train them up, we need to live up. We can't go down morally and train them up morally. We, Mom and dad, we can't go down spiritually and train them up spiritually. We've got to get up spiritually before they'll come up spiritually. But if you and I will come up spiritually, we can train them up. We need a church culture that's training up people, training up people, training up people. That's why we worship the way that we do. That's why we pray before church. We're training up. We're modeling it. We're training up. If we fail to train up, we have failed at the most basic responsibility as parents, pastor, and church leadership. Training up <clears throat> involves narrowing a child's conduct away from evil and toward godliness and starting them in the right direction. A man by the name of Gleason L. Archer 
points out that this Hebrew verb is similar to the Egyptian meaning of train, which means to give to the gods or to set something aside for divine service. In other words, Christianity is not the only world religion that believes in separation for a divine purpose. Even the Egyptians realized we need to set our children aside and give them over to the gods. If the Egyptians are giving them over to the gods, you and I better give our children over to the God, Jesus Christ. It's training them up. It's setting a trajectory. It's pointing them in a direction. And it's leading them. And when they get out of control, we hedge them in. Children, young people, young adults, when you're getting hedged in and you feel like it's just so narrow, there's rules in this Pentecostal way, and I just feel like I'm so restricted, you better thank God. You better shift your attitude right there. You better change your spirit right there. Satan's trying to get you to complain. Satan's trying to say, this is too narrow, too restrictive. Thank God. Thank God for a mom and dad who will train you up. All children... Important, important for us to know, to embrace, to understand. All children will hit a phase when they don't feel spiritual and they don't want to be spiritual. They don't want to worship. They don't want to go to church. They're bored and they don't want standards of separation. I don't know one young person that at some point in time in their life, they have not faced a little bit of that. Some, a, a lot of that. Others, at least in their mind, maybe they don't behave that way, but in their mind, they're thinking that way. Every young person will hit that place. That's where we train up right there. You know, it's like, I think it was, um, I think it was Tim Elmore who said, you know, bound, or maybe it was Townsend who, who said that boundaries, boundaries in children's life, parents are called to be the boundary. Children and young people are going to run into that boundary 10,000 times. It's our responsibility to be the boundary 10,001 times. They're not going to like you sometimes, mom and dad. They're going to get mad at you sometimes, mom and dad. We're not here for a popularity contest. Uh, we're here to hedge them in to the point where, okay, now you're being responsible. You get some more freedom right now. Amen. You're, you're praying. You want to get to the house of God. You're not looking for ways to skip church. You're not looking for ways out of church. You want to get to church. You want to be there. All right. We're training them up. It's being responsible. The worst thing that we can do is tell them what to do and we're not doing it ourselves. That will breed bitterness and resentment inside of their hearts. It's our responsibility to show the way so that they will go the way. What direction are we pointing our families? What is your eternal destination? This is critically important because if the destination is heaven and the destination is not hell, then direction will become much easier when you have to give direction. If you're wandering around saying, what's my sense of obligation and what direction should I be giving, if you have not defined your eternal destination, you will, you will go in all kinds of pathways because you won't know what your sense of obligation is. You really won't know what path to direct them. But when you've already settled it, that my job, number one, is to get my wife and my children to an eternal destination, which is heaven. We are not going to hell. Hell's not coming in the house. I'm not going to allow sin to dictate and control my family. We've got an eternal destination that we're going to. That means that my obligation and the direction that I give pretty much is already solved. 
It takes a lot of things off of the table and it's easy to say to my children, that's not even an option right now. Because if we let that become an option, that could lead you to a different eternal destination. And I am responsible for getting you to the kingdom of heaven. When I stand before Jesus, now as a pastor, it's kind of a, you know, a dual responsibility. First and foremost, it's my family. Secondly, it's a church. Our job, ladies and gentlemen, is to get to heaven. Our job is, that's our responsibility, is to get to heaven. And so the scripture teaches us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, this is responsibility, how shall he take care of the church of God. Now, I understand that primarily this is speaking, Paul speaking to Timothy, and he's talking about um, being a leader, a pastor over the church, and he's also talking about empowering other people to be leaders and pastors in the church. However, this generally applies to each and every one of us. One of the most re reliable means of determining the quality of one's potential leadership is by examining the behavior of his or her children. Let me say that again. Say you're a parent, I say you're a mom, I say you're a dad, you're aspiring to do something for God. God, I want to do something for you. God, how are you raising your children? What, how are your children behaving? What Paul is saying to Timothy is, if someone is aspiring to leadership, let's look at their family. Let's see how their children are behaving. If their children are behaving well, then you know that there's some potential inside. Because listen, if you can't manage that house well, how can you manage the church of God well? How can you manage a ministry well? How can you manage a department well? If we're not even ruling well our own children. Question to be asked, do they respect their father enough to submit to his leadership? with proper respect, or literally what he was saying, with all gravity. This is what he said. What do we mean by gravity? It means that they respect that man enough that when he exercises his authority, it's very easy for the children to submit to his leadership. Now let's take a look at the responsibilities of men and women, and we'll look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I will that men pray everywhere. Doing what? Lifting up holy hands, how? Without wrath and without doubting, or that word is better translated, disputing. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. All of this has to do with responsibility and church conduct, uh, life conduct. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but, but which, that which becometh women professing godliness with good works. So let's take a look at some points from these passages. Men have an obligation. Men have an obligation to make sure that anger and disputes do not become the new focus of worship that will set your direction, that will then determine your destination. Men, there's a reason that the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, when you lift up your hands, make sure you're doing this without wrath, which is, which is an overt or which is an explosive anger, because what he's saying is men have a problem with anger a lot of times. Men will have a major problem with anger. And what he's saying is if you ever let your anger get a hold of you, and 
if that anger moves into the place of disputing with other people, then there's no way that you can have that functioning inside of your life and have godly character and at the same time come into the church and lift up your hands. Not going to happen. God is saying, wait a minute, I hear what you're saying. You're talking in tongues right now, but I can't even receive that and edify that because you need to go back and correct the anger issue and the disputing issue. And so this is what he's saying is, make sure that a spirit of anger does not get a hold of you to the point that it changes your direction. This is what I've seen, pastor, a long time now. This is what I've seen when people backslide. The first thing they do is they don't compromise their holiness standards. The first thing they do is they allow, oftentimes allow a spirit of anger to get in them. They're, they either get angry at their parents if they're teenagers, then they get angry at the pastor, or they get angry with some leader inside of the church. And because they feel like they're offended, they got hurt, they got wounded, you know, something happened and they got angry about it. And so then they started disputing. Now, they know they're not going to dispute openly in the church, and so they'll create these little side pockets of disputing and they'll start these things going on and all of the while they got their hands in the air but you see something that's going something that's going on what he's saying is men we have a responsibility we have a responsibility before we ever come to the house of God to find a prayer closet somewhere and make sure be ye angry and sin not don't let the sun go down on your wrath neither give place to the devil the devil is right around the corner from your anger. you got to make sure before the devil has a heyday in your life, I'm getting rid of it. If that means saying, baby, I'm sorry, then you say, baby, I'm sorry. If it means saying, I'm sorry to the children, then you know what you do? You sit down in the living room and you bring the children in. And you say, you know, dad got a little bit beyond himself and I need to apologize to you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for doing that. What are you doing right there? You know, you know, oh, come on. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm going to walk out of here and go do that tonight, Brother McLaughlin. Makes a good chart, doesn't it? But when you feel like you're right about something, when you get obstinate and there's this disputing going on, very, very difficult to do sometimes. Instead of looking at your spouse as the enemy, you've got to see your spouse as one flesh. Instead of looking at the children as your enemy, you've got to see them as you are guiding them and leading them, and it's the devil that is the enemy. And he's trying to use anger to create a beachhead inside of that home so that he can go back to it time and time and time again. That's why if I, if I said show, let's see a show of hands to men in this room right now who've either all your life or for the last several years you've been battling some anger issues. Mm -hmm. Huh? Think about it. Can I be real and transparent? I deal with the same thing. He, typically, here's what happens. Here's what happens. So those who are extrovert types of people, they normally deal with anger issues. Those who are more introverted, they deal with fear issues. They deal with fear issues. A lot of times you can get real explosive. You can be angry and you can be like a volcano and explode. Or you can be like the crock pot and you can just simmer and simmer and simmer and simmer and mull it over and mull it over and mull it over and mull it over. And then, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, that turns into a volcano. And, and, and you, now you're in the pressure cooker. And, and all of a sudden, man, be careful. You know, it's like that old, it's like that old Mustang that I had when I was a teenager. and uh, The radiator was busted and there was a... I would open up the hood and I would open up that, that cap. You know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. It's like, be careful, McLaughlin, be careful. So you know what you do? You take a towel. 
you throw it on there, and you step back like this. You push down on it, boom! All of that water, all of that hot water comes out. Same is true if we let that anger simmer inside of us. And we reinforce it when we don't ask God to forgive us and other people to forgive us. And we come in and we lift up holy hands with wrath and with disputing. He said, if you want to praise me and want to be right with me, it's a character issue. Get rid of the anger. Get rid of the wrath. Throw those hands in the air. Men, those of you that raised your hand a minute ago, you know what we need to do right now? We need to throw our hands high in the air. And we need to give God praise. And you say, yeah, but Brother McLaughlin, I'm angry right now. Get the hands in the air and repent of your anger. Ask God to forgive you right now. God, I am sorry. Get it out of my life. Get it out of my heart. I don't want to explode. I don't want to go through any of that. I give you praise right now, Lord. It's our responsibility. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 through 2, 3, responsibilities of men. He said, this charge I, excuse me, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou mightest war a good warfare. So what we're looking at here, and I'm just going to run through some scripture, and then I'll provide a responsibility. Responsibility to the calling that produces a conviction that will fight for direction and destination. A man is responsible. This is responsibilities of a man. A man is responsible to make sure that his beliefs, his values, and his convictions are all in alignment with one another. They cannot be random and scattered. A man is responsible for aligning his beliefs, his values, and his convictions. Let me give you an example. According to Malachi chapter 3, Verses 8 through 11, and I won't read that, but it, it speaks about who will rob God. And then it's dealing with the tithing issue. And so, so personally, here is an example. I believe in paying my tithes and my offerings according to Matthew chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. Because I believe that, I value honoring God I value honoring my wife. I value honoring my children. I value keeping the windows of heaven open, not only for my family, but for the church that I lead. This is what I believe with all of my heart, and it is a non-negotiable value of mine. So I'm going to take care of my wife, and I'm going to take care of my children, and I'm going to do my best as a pastor to keep the windows of heaven open on my family and on this church. I am going to pay my tithes, and I am going to give because it keeps the windows open, and God rebukes the devourer. God will take care of my family. I believe that with all of my heart. Therefore, I am going to be faithful. That's my belief. That's my value. So now my conviction, because I believe that, and it's a value of mine because I see it as taking care of my family and being a good pastor, my conviction is that I live by the conviction of God getting my first fruits before paying any other bills or before spending any other money on my wants, or my desires, or my vacations, or my whatever I'm wanting, I always, God gets my first fruits every week consistently. 
I have a conviction over that because I value that because I believe that. And so I've got to make sure that those always stay in alignment. If money comes into my hand, I have a belief system, I have a value system, and I have conviction over this. I am not compromising that. I'm going to live under an open heaven where God can take care of myself and my family. It's just what I believe, it's what I value, it's my conviction. Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience which some having put away concerning the faith have made shipwreck. Responsible. Here's what he said, holding faith. Did you get that? Holding faith. What does he mean, holding faith? The term hold means to wear it or possess it until it possesses me. It's faith. Holding on to faith. In other words, our faith is like something we wear. It's like something we put on. To hold faith means that I possess faith, but then as I possess that faith, that faith then turns around and possesses me so that it becomes this reciprocating relationship that I'm trusting God. But as I'm trusting God and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting for God to come through, I'm going through no man's land. When God comes through, then it's like, ah, that's what I had faith over. My faith grabs a hold of me and it builds my confidence that I know if God came through today, God's going to come through tomorrow, and God's going to come through next year, and God's going to come through. That's my responsibility as a man to teach my family that, to lead that way. Come on, men. It's our God-given responsibility. Be faithful. Be faithful. Possess faith and let faith possess you. Let it grip your heart. Verse 20. I could go on, responsible to stay out of shipwrecked crowds and keep your family out of shipwrecked crowds. That's what he said. He said, have, holding faith and having a good conscience. We could stop and talk about having a good conscience. I won't. Which some, having put away their faith and put away a good conscience, concerning the faith, they have made shipwreck. A man's responsibility is to make sure that his family and his children are not around a shipwrecked crowd. You with me? It matters who you're following on social media. It matters who you're following on Instagram. If they are a shipwrecked young man or young woman, you shouldn't be following them obsessively to see how far they've gone outside of the church. That is a shipwrecked crowd that is not edifying the holiness of God. And you have a responsibility, a moral responsibility to get your children out of that shipwrecked crowd and get them into a church and get them into a youth group and get them around friends and get them around people that are sailing to heaven. Sailing to heaven. My conscience will not let my kids run with those people. Come on, you've got to be careful with your conscience. If your conscience is telling you, don't let them go to that house. Don't let them go over there. Don't violate your conscience. Because if you violate your conscience and you let go of your faith, all of a sudden now your kids are in this broken down vessel. And there they are, shipwrecked on the bank somewhere. The bank with a bunch of backsliders. I don't know how it happened, Pastor. I'll tell you how it happened. You were irresponsible. That's exactly how it happened. You, you should have said no to them. You should have hedged that thing in. You should have narrowed that thing down. You, you let the boundaries go. You erased all the boundaries, and they just went crazy on you prematurely. You with me? Just talking about responsibility of men. Verse 20. 
of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander. These are people that, that go of the faith and violated their conscience and they've shipwrecked their life. And so he said, I did something. I delivered them to Satan <clears throat> that they might learn not to blaspheme. We wouldn't want Paul as our pastor. <laughs> hey, Paul, what do you think about this situation? Oh, I turned you over to Satan. What? Wait a minute, what kind of pastor are you? You, t well, you did what? Yeah, I turned you over to Satan so you'd learn not to blaspheme. <laughs> we wouldn't want Paul as our pastor. He <laughs> said, no, really, I love you. You hadn't let me do the job as a pastor in your life. You hadn't let God be God in your life, so maybe Satan will do a better job than all of us. Moving right along. We just went, <laughs> I exhort, therefore, that first of all, this is key, this is responsibility. First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Responsibility to be a man of prayer that will lead to a church of prayer. For kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. In other words, what he's saying is men... You, more than anyone else, can show and teach children and your family responsibility on how to properly relate to authority in their life that results in peace and purity. Look at it. Make sure that you're praying for the authority. So if you have an issue with authority, the best thing to do is not to complain about the authority. The best thing to do is start praying for the authority. So that it then reunites a relationship with that authority in your life so that it results with a quiet, peaceable life. In other words, teaching them how to relate to authority. So just, just a few practical little nuggets here to, to the younger and to all of us as men. Be on time. Be, on, be responsible enough to be on time. And hey, if you can't be on time, be early. Keep your word and do what you say you're going to do. Be responsible. Communicate to elders and even your peers in a respectful and timely manner. Do not say, yeah, nah. Say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, sir. No, ma'am. And if they're communicating with you through text message, don't ignore them. And don't leave them hanging to the point that when they need an answer right now, it's almost like you're in this passive-aggressive behavior to let them know, I'm going to let you know I'm in control. I'll get to you when I can get to you. You know good and well you saw the text. You know good and well you know that they're asking for you. Respond right then because you are conveying, I don't respect you enough to communicate with you in a timely fashion. I'll get to you later. That gets on people's nerves. Be respectful enough and responsible enough to communicate in an effective way. Hey, ushers, go ahead. Just let's pass the offering plate again to all the parents. That was, that was you know, that was worth something. <laughs> Tell the truth always, even when it's easier and more convenient to lie. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. You with me? Can I go to the responsibilities of women? For the ladies in the church in Ephesus, the issue was the same. It was direction and destination. 
A dad asked his daughter, who was a preteen, where do you find diamonds? Deep down in the ground, protected and covered. Where do you find pearls? Deep down at the bottom of the ocean, covered up and protected in a beautiful shell. Where do you find gold? Way down in the mine, covered with layers and layers of rock. Then he said to her, your body is a treasure and your body is sacred. You are far more precious than diamonds and pearls. And you are much more valuable than gold. You ought to cover up your body because you're a treasure. It's not about a Pentecostal rule. It's about you being a vessel of God who is treasured in the eyes of God. And you cover what God loves. And you cover what God treasures. Get more mature than saying it's some Pentecostal church rule. This on. You're a treasure. Cover the treasure. Cover the treasure. Cover the treasure. Cover the treasure to the point where even when you sit down, you're modest. You know, you've heard me talk about the, the hand-me-ups. When the little sister gives the big sister her clothes. And big sister puts on little sisters because she's wearing hand-me-ups. When all else fails... Common sense works. If it's not long enough when you sit down, it's not long enough. Be responsible. Be responsible. Just be responsible. God asked a rhetorical question in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10 and 11. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband, this is powerful. The heart of her husband safely trusts her so that he shall have no need of spoil. Her value far, being far above rubies is covered by the biblical principle called modesty. The purpose of modesty is to cover what God calls his treasure. Modesty is about ownership and stewardship, which is an issue of responsibility to God. If God owns the body, and that the body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, where God has chosen to dwell, the responsibility is to properly manage and take care of what's his. Our bodies are not our own. Our bodies are the temple of God. In fact, it referred to the, the, the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory dwelt. It was a place that was covered up. What he's saying is if I dwelled and was covered there, I want to be covered now. I want to dwell inside of you, but make sure that when people are looking at you, they're not looking at you as an object. They are looking at you to see me and to see my glory through your modest Attitude first and your modest dress second. But let people see the glory of God. I know that the world does not help you when you go shopping. So, so time out and let's pause. 
church, let's thank this church and thank the ladies who probably struggle big time, but thank you for being godly, wanting to be godly, wanting to be modest. Thank you so much. Thank you to the young ladies. And guys, it's a slap in the face if you go date someone out in the world that's immodest, that looks unclean, and that's worldly. And we've got beautiful, modest girls right here. Some of you need to open your eyes and realize your wife may be sitting in this church or your husband may be in this church. Well, I need to go to Alaska. What if it's in Euless? Oh, that was good right there. That was powerful right there. May the scales fall from some of your eyes to see. Hello. Amen. Good preaching, Pastor. Thank you so much, Brother McLaughlin. Okay, I'll amen myself. The way you see yourself determines the way you dress yourself. The way you see yourself determines the way you dress yourself. The church is God's treasure and should be covered in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. So a question that I've asked, and I'll ask it again, are you classy? Are you flashy or are you trashy? Good question to ask. Am I dressing with class? Am I dressing in a way that's trashy? Or am I dressing in a way that's flashy? The term modest. It means to not call attention to oneself. So even in modesty. So be real careful. Be real careful that when you're considering modesty, you're not getting into, you know, it's just you start looking at every little rule. Think about principle. What does the word modesty even mean? This is what it means. To not call attention to oneself. Unassuming, low-key, quiet, and reserved. Modesty first addresses the spirit and the attitude. Secondly, the clothing. Do your clothes call attention to your body? Or are your clothes unassuming, low-key, quiet, and reserved? Paul assesses the church and he says, teach them to be responsible to the holiness of God, avoiding wearing of gold, pearls, and clothes that cost so much that it places question on a person's self-control, which is a form of modesty. We need to be real careful and let's be balanced in all of this because we can preach hard against all of this. How much did it cost? How does that fit into your budget? How much did you have to put it on a credit card to where now you're paying 21% interest because there was this this compulsive drive to fit in with the crowd and so you went into debt or you spent money that wasn't even budgeted toward that. It was way beyond budget, but man, you walk in and you're looking good. I mean, you better better feel good about that because if you're paying 21%, you're going to be paying for the next three years on that outfit that'll end up at Goodwill. Somebody else will go to Goodwill and pay $5 for it and look sharp, and you're paying the bill. Be responsible. Ah, it's getting quiet. (laughs) Okay, I'll get back to the men. Uh Uh-uh, I'm going to park right here for a little bit. I haven't, I haven't, you know I haven't taught like this in a long time. It's been needed. I know some of you have been saying, when's pastor going to talk? When's he going to deal with some of this? Which direction are you going in inner and outer modesty? What's your eternal destination? Here's a question to ask. 
every time before. Every time you look in the mirror, right before you walk out of the house. Are you dressing like you're going to the judgment seat of Christ? Or are you dressing like you're going to the club? When you look in the mirror, before you go out of the house, if the trumpet sounds, the rapture happens, and we go to the judgment seat of Christ, if you were to present yourself in that clothing, are you comfortable standing at the judgment seat of Christ, or are you dressed like you're about to go to the club? God, let us be responsible enough to be ready to meet the Lord and stand before Him in judgment. Why is this important? Why, 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 is, why is this important? Let's talk about a few effects of immodesty. First of all, immodesty devalues a woman. Does not increase your value, it devalues you. No matter what culture says, no matter what you're saying in your mind, in the eyes of God, immodesty is devaluing the image of God. Every culture protects and fences what it values the most. Immodesty removes the protection and promotes a devaluation of purity and marriage. When a woman's worth is determined by her visual appeal, she is reduced to an object. Immodesty is demeaning both to the onlooker and the one who is looked upon. 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10 um, in the New Living Translation. And I want women to be modest in their appearance that they should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things that they do. Secondly, immodesty breeds a shallowness. Immodesty communicates that this is all there is to me. It suggests a superficial, empty soul. It invites a shallow exchange. It attracts thieves, not warriors. It takes a sinful detour and misses heaven. Listen, if you want someone who is spiritually mature, if you want a man in your life when you get married, if you want a man who is godly, who has godly character, godly reputation, that one day if you were to marry him and you have children, a man that is going to direct your children the right direction in a godly way, ultimately that will be responsible enough to take you to heaven and to take the family to heaven, you are not going to attract that kind of guy with immodest dress. When you dress modestly, a godly man is going to be attracted to that modesty because the modesty tells that young man she's not for sale. She has a walk with God. She loves God. She loves the truth. She loves the Bible. And she's willing to dress appropriately, even if that means waiting a little bit longer to find the right guy in her life. Don't compromise your conviction. You got to believe it, you got to value it, and you got to have a conviction on it. Don't compromise your conviction to find some cheapskate. Can we clap our hands and give the Lord praise? Amen. Amen. Immodesty creates temptation. There's a character flaw. When a young woman wants to use her body to attract the opposite sex rather than depending on Christ-like character to attract the opposite sex. She dresses in a way to draw attention to her body, not 
her heart. There's a character flaw if a married woman wants to look attractive for other men other than her husband. Matthew chapter 5 verse 28 tells us that a man who looks on a woman has already come and lusts after her has already committed sin in his heart. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 5 verse 28. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This being the case, where does it place a woman who wants to dress in a way as to cause a man to lust? As God looks into the heart of that man, he is also looking into the heart of that woman with equal judgment. Scripture teaches us in the Song of Solomon for a marriage. The scripture says that she is a fountain shut up and a garden enclosed. In other words, there is exclusiveness about that marriage that no one gets into the garden. Part of that is the way that a woman and even a man will dress. It should be dressed to the point that A, I'm pleasing God. B, I'm dressing in a way that says I am totally taken with my spouse and for my spouse. I am not for sale and I'm not trying to attract anybody else. It's just as wrong for a married woman to dress that way than it is a man to lust in his heart. They're equally wrong. Let's stand together. So these are, these are responsibilities. I didn't get to the ministry of decrease, so what I'll do is I'll teach the ministry of decrease. There's six principles from Romans chapter 15 um, that talks about what's called the leadership pyramid, and, and it's the difference between rights and responsibilities. I'll deal with that, and then we'll go into the corresponding behavior of time management. And some, some of that's just more like stuff that you guys know, probably like the smart, you know, specific, just things that you know, um, but we'll literally talk about time management. You know, how come, how come you take two people, let's say 35, 35 years of age, how come one is so far advanced and the other 35-year-old still like an 18-year-old? If you started to analyze that, those two lives, part of it, a significant part of it would be time management. How do they manage their time? It's like, well, okay. And I'm not saying that education is for everybody. That's not what I'm saying right now. But it is for many people, and you will get a better job if you have an education. But here's the deal. So how do you manage your time? I just don't have enough time. Well, how do you manage your time? How come there are some people that are much more spiritually mature and, and spiritually strong than other people at the same age? Well, how are you managing your spiritual growth time? Like, what are your personal goals to grow spiritually? And how do you factor that into your time management? Because here's, here's what I know about, probably I shouldn't say that because I don't know about other denominations. I was about to say, here's what I know about Pentecostalism. But I, that's not a fair statement because I don't know about other denominations. This is what I know about Christianity as, as a whole, just from writing and research. This, this is what you learn. People get very emotional about making a commitment, but they don't have a lot of devotion behind the emotion. 
And so, man, they just take off. So, so, so we could have a service where it's going to be a commitment service. And, man, we can craft a sermon and, and we, can, we can preach it. And boy, all of a sudden we're moved emotionally. I am going to do this. A week later, they jumped off the bandwagon. Why? Responsibility and time management. It's setting that clock 30 minutes earlier to say, Lord, I'm going to get up 30 minutes earlier. It's getting your homework done on your lunch break so that at night, if you committed to spiritual devotion, you can stick with that spiritual devotion and you've not mismanaged your time to where now all of a sudden everything's stacking up on you and you're having a nervous breakdown because you can't get everything done. I want to pray. We'll open the altar if you want to come. If you want to come and pray. It's about being responsible. Like, is God dealing with you about any certain responsibilities in your life? Has God convicted you over some things? I want to open the altar. The youth praise band's coming. And uh, and we're going to sing together. But I want us to bow our heads right now and let's pray together. And let's ask God to baptize us once again with this sense of, of just being responsible. What an awesome word we heard today from Pastor McLaughlin. Hey, if you want to stay connected with the church and the podcast, do not forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Calvary Ulyss or visit our website at calvaryulyss.org. That's calvaryulyss.org. See you guys next week for an all new episode. Thank you guys so much for listening.